from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, 3D printing and the circular economy, why cold chains are a hot topic, One Bank's quest to make sustainable finance the new normal, and the Port of Los Angeles sets sail for the blue economy. Yep, it's the next wave, this week on 350. It's April the 12th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as she does, from the Garden State is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you today? I'm doing just great. Uh, Good. Another great week. Beautiful weather, I think, uh, lots of places, except maybe the Midwest. But here in California, we've finally hit spring. The rain seems to have stopped, uh, which is, uh, you know, we loved, loved, loved the rain. But we're also happy to see sunny skies. Mm-hmm. How about well, I am staring at beautiful forsythia bushes all over the place right now. Just yellow popped. All the spring colors are popping out, which is just lovely, in my opinion. In my opinion, um, and then you, you in California, you were in, not just in Oakland, California this week, you were in Los Angeles, right? I did a swing through the southern part of our state uh, mm-hmm. to catch up with some colleagues and friends, and uh, along the way, I had a great experience um, along with uh, an old friend of mine, Terry Taminen, who's the uh, president of the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, and together, we went to something called Alta Sea, A-L-T-A-S-E-A, Alta Sea, which is at the port of Los Angeles, which is a emerging reclamation of a, of a beautiful set of warehouses uh, where they're setting up an acceleration and collaboration and incubation space for companies that inspire the next generation for a more sustainable ocean. Pretty cool. And uh, we're going to uh, play a clip a little bit later with Tim McCosker, the chief executive officer there. And um, it was really interesting to see how uh, all these different entities are coming together, 20-some universities and colleges, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX, and, and a bunch of others, including Boeing, uh, coming together to, to work on these projects for the blue economy. So more on that coming up. How about you, Heather? Anything particular noteworthy this week? Not particularly. I'm, I'm heads down building panels for circularity and have some great um, interviews I'm lining up, but can't tell you yet what they are because it's a secret. <laughs> okay, well, I hope you can tell me later. Um, well, that's great. Well, that's special. I can't tell our listeners what uh, it is. I know, I know. Uh, I, that, that's special because, uh, you know, we're working hard on um, both Verge 2019 and Circularity mm-hmm. 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh there's a lot to do, but this is the fun part, of the, and, and gruelingly fun part, I have to say. And, and mm-hmm. thank you for to you and Katie Fehrenbacher and Lauren Phipps and Jim Giles and the rest of the Green Biz team who are working on on the various aspects of, of both of these conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot of work, but the payoff is always fun. Yeah, I know, Sarah. Um, Golden, my colleague on the energy side, just talked to our, one of our advisors this week, Amory Levins. So um, 
and great, did a great interview with him. So it's just, it's also wonderful because I get really energized. Um, but I just want to point out that it is also sustainability report season, which means that there's some really fun new goals that people are announcing. And that's what, what I'm trying to sort through is what's unique. And uh, so that's what I'm scouting for right now. But yeah, it's fun. Lots of, lots of things to do um, and lots of Lots of activities to, to keep us busy and inspired. Well, let's do our own sustainability report now on the Week in Review. So let's start with one of my favorite topics, 3D printing, or as it's also referred to, additive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking about 3D printing as a key part of the circular economy uh, because it allows you to to reduce waste by printing things in real time exactly where they're needed, less shipping, less packaging, um, less manufacturing waste. You're adding things rather than subtracting things. In other words, rather than you know carving something out of a bigger piece of a metal or, or, or some other material, you're using just what you need. And we had a great piece from one of our regulars, Sarah Murphy, saying we're not yet there. Right. Sarah has written about this topic a couple of times for us. And, and, you know, I had been hearing a lot of hype about, ooh, it's ready, it's ready. And so I said, hey, can you check up on this and, and see where, where things are? And I, I believe the point really is that, that um, there's a lot to measure and to, to really determine whether or not um, this is a, a truly a circular uh, economy or sort of breakthrough, if you will, and whether it really will enable things to, to become that way. And I believe that, um, for me, one of the most fascinating pieces with this was um, the, on the material side. So this is probably maybe something that all of, all of our audience knows, but maybe not. But the, the materials that are often used in 3D printing are types of plastics, or polymers, acrylic polymers, and so forth. Um, they're reinforced. And so you know, while there are some great stories um, on on the side, you know, the side of hey, we can make things lighter. We don't have to use these metals. There, you know, we can we can we can print them on site and so forth. There's a sort of a, a challenge when when it comes to what happens to these materials after they become used um, and become spent, if you will. So a lot of the materials that are being used for three D printing have glass or they're reinforced in some way, and that isn't necessarily something that the current recycling process can handle. So there's, there's definitely things to, to think about on the materials side. Um, and then, you know, on the transportation side, how do you get these materials to where they're going to be printed? And, and so, you know, from a logistics standpoint, yes, you're saving money on shipping the, the full blown part, um, but you have to get the material for the parts there some way. So there's just, there's, there's a sort of yes, but a lot of yes, buts, um, if you will, things to consider when you think about 3D printing. Yes, but that's the situation with everything in sustainability. Nothing's perfect and there's always kinds of trade-offs. Uh, and I think one of the things about 3D printing is that it is here and now and, and it is being used. I pretty much every commercial airline hangar, in, uh, at least in the United States and probably around the world, has a 3D printer to print a non-critical part for that plane that needs a handle or a little thing here and there. And by the time it lands at an airport, that part might be ready. Um, and saving the shipping, saving you know the overproduction or whatever it is, or the inventory. So there's a, there's a lot of, of things here. I recently had 
a crown and uh, one of my teeth mm. it had had to be replaced and usually it's um you know you go to the dentist and they drill out the the excavate the what's needed there and then they they do an impression and you come back two or three weeks later for to have this thing put in which then needs to be re, you know ground down a little bit and made perfect this time uh they said yeah go sit in the lobby for a, for a, an hour for was probably 45 minutes and they printed it on on the spot and it fit perfectly and and so the end of life on that what happens to that material later not my concern because <laughs> i hope to have this uh, for the for the duration so there already are a, a lot of applications where it, it is uh, what it's made from and is less critical than than the ability to create it in real time uh, on on the spot. However, having said that, it is a real concern. If you think about how the advent of computers, we talked about creating the paperless office um, and that we were going to eliminate all that waste. And of course, uh, it didn't. Uh, in fact, people said, oh, I can do a spreadsheet and I can or I can do drafts on, on word processing. I can print out every version and make extra copies. And and it turns out, as the as the quip has it, that the paperless office turned out to be about as practical as the paperless bathroom. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, and I think that's a, there's a risk here too, where if we can print out prototype after prototype and try and tweak and do lots of little things, there is a potential here for waste. And of course, what is this material? And if we do that, if we print out. 10 prototypes before we get to the, the one we really like. Will those other nine uh, actually, can we put those back into in the cycle, dematerialize de them or, or depolymerize them or, or just turn them back into the basic materials? That's a technology that remains to be seen. And then finally, there's what's this stuff made from if we're just continually uh, circling, uh, recycling something that's toxic? That's not a happy story. So there's a lot to... Uh, think about here and a lot of progress still to be made. I think it's very ironic that you're more excited about a technology than I am. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but uh, no, I, yes. I, I agree. I think this is a great um, thing. And I think this is one of those things we have to watch. Absolutely. Well, one of the things we're watching also is uh, what in industrial world is called the cold chain. This is basically the temperature controlled supply chain when you pick produce or something or create a medicine and how do you keep it cold all the way to market and and even after that and uh we're seeing new new partnerships new technologies new new government efforts to improve people's lives by bringing them more fresh fruit and, and vegetables around the world but that requires a lot more energy and as we saw in the book called drawdown edited by paul hawken Refrigeration uh, is actually one of the biggest opportunity spaces for reducing uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, the uh, coolants used in, in air conditioning and refrigeration are potent greenhouse gases and, and they do leak out. And so it's also one of the biggest problems. And as we get more and more refrigerated uh, goods going to the poorer parts of the world, and climate change heats up the, the world and more and more people want and can afford air conditioning, we've got a problem here. But this piece is about specifically about cold chains, uh, looks a lot at, at what's happening in, company, in countries like India and Nigeria, uh, and it's just a really interesting topic. Yeah, the reason I loved it, um, and it's by Peyton Fleming, who, who used to be with Ceres um, and who 
has a, a lot of experience with emerging markets in Africa and, and, and Asia. And that's what this, this particular piece focuses on rural farmers in India and Africa. Um, and I just love the, the stories he's got in here. He talks about one farm in India that, you know, they were, they were growing kind of like potatoes, onions, carrots, and, and they kind of just had to make do with things that would keep, right? Because they didn't have refrigeration and they, they'd have to sell them in their local markets and, and have to deal with whatever the prices were. Now, um, by investing in some of these, these technologies, they've, they've got a 30-ton cold storage unit, a 60-kilowatt solar system, and three refrigerated vehicles. And, now, and they've been able to add mushrooms to their, to their crop mix, and they're able to sell them um, in, in supermarkets that aren't close. They're, they're in, in Delhi and Gurjgram. And it's, they've reported this incredible increase in revenue and net, net income. So this is one of those um, pieces that shows the potential for entrepreneurship that's enabled by by advances like these, and yeah, the the um, the thing that that you have to that we'll have to keep on top of is what the energy source is, right? So um, diesel is sort of the the culprit in places like this, but um, some some government initiatives and some companies like Danfoss and um, so forth. Uh, another organization called Twiga Farms, they're focusing on how to enable this without that dirty, that dirty fuel. Um, so it's a great piece on the possibilities. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that India is the first country in the world to launch a national cooling strategy, uh, where their, uh, prime minister Modi is, has an ambitious target to double farmer incomes by 2022. And that's, uh, cold storage access is one of the key pillars of that. So yeah, great story to watch. And as they say over at the national cooling strategy, Cool. Yeah, right on. So uh, finally, I want to get to a story you did about a a Dutch bank that's just, I've been watching increasingly and just fascinating, ING, and what they're doing to turn sustainable finance into just finance. Right. And um, we we talked about them a little bit um, in the past. There's a couple of individuals here that are focused on... um, bringing sustainable finance to uh, United States, to North America, and also just the, com- the company committed last fall to sort of basically turning its entire portfolio and, and into something that supports a two-degree future. It's called the Terra approach, and they're basically using it as a framework for evaluating how a loan or, or an investment could uh, contribute to a low-carbon economy. So um, what we've said in the past, and, and, and we report on some great money that's flowing into financing renewable energy and, and, and circular economy initiatives and so forth, but some of the banks that are putting that money up, some of the financial services companies, are not necessarily taking money out of other places, right? So they're, they're still funding those, those uh, oil gas and gas explorations, um, and you know that's what ING is, is really trying to to get around. They're, they're saying, listen, you know what, that's, that's well and good for these other organizations, but we are going to focus only on that future, the, the, the two degree future. And, and we're going to make sure our, our, our investments are going there. So one of the first things that they've done here in the United States is a, is a loan to a company called Xylem. They're a water technology company. And uh, they, they've got one of those uh, sustainability loans, uh, Joel, that we've written about a couple of times this year. That was one of our focuses in the 
State of Green Business uh, report. And it basically, um, it says to a company, yes, um, here, we're going to give you this, this loan. You can use it for what you need, right? You can, you can improve different aspects of your business. Um, it doesn't have to necessarily be tied to, to a sustainability project. However, you're going to get a better rate if you, as an, as an overall company, could uh, prove that you're improving on your environmental, social, and governance metrics. So it's kind of a different approach, and ING is, is the first one to pull one of those off here in the, in the United States. Yeah, and sort of as a case in point, uh, another development this week is that uh, Bank of America issued its third commitment to sustainable finance, pledging to mobilize uh, up to $300 billion in capital by 2030. Um, this is on top of a commitment they made five or six years ago when they pledged to deploy $125 billion by 2025. And it says that they will achieve this commitment by the end of this year, six years ahead of schedule. But it's also important to point out that uh, uh, B of A, along with uh, a number of other large banks, um, are under scrutiny because they're, uh, as, as a report came out uh, last month from Rainforest Action Network and BankTrack and some others, they are one of the four biggest global bankers of the fossil fuel industry, along with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citi. So uh, to your point, uh, ING is, is really, if, if they truly are backing away from or have stopped financing fossil fuels, uh, that's a big leap forward. This week during my travels, I was down in Los Angeles and I had the opportunity along with my friend Terry Taminen of the Leo DiCaprio Foundation to visit something called Altasea over in the port of Los Angeles. Fascinating use of uh, existing uh, old terminals uh, to uh, incubate new companies and do exploration across a number of fronts. I'm here with Tim McCosker, the CEO of Altasea and uh, wow, what an incredible place, Tim. Thanks very much, Joel. We're glad, glad to have you and Terry here today. Altasea at the Port of Los Angeles is a 501c3 company. In partnership with the Port of Los Angeles, we have a 50-year lease for 35 acres of this urban ocean. And what our goal is to establish a business center in existing 180,000 square feet of warehouse next to a university center in a 60,000 square foot warehouse and have all of that incorporate the community for inspiring folks to think about the ocean, think about climate change, think about sustaining the ocean for future generations. So you've got uh, business incubation, you've got university research, you've also got the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, and NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, and SpaceX all using this space. Uh, I'm fascinated with the, the, what you see as the potential to grow new businesses. Talk about the kinds of businesses you're interested in and, and what you hope to see happen. We also have Boeing, by the way, and we are focusing primarily in two areas, ocean uh, farming, which is aquaculture, and in blue robotics, robots in the ocean. And so our idea is to have anchor tenants in each of those areas and then have those anchor tenants accompany startup companies. And so we want to incubate and accelerate, but also have anchor tenants that will help the business model flow. So. For example, Blue Robotics is a startup company that does um, small robots in the ocean, and they're going to be next to Boeing. Uh, Catalina Sea Ranch is an aqua farming company with the first company to pull permits in federal waters in the United States, and they're going to be next to startup seaweed companies. Our third phase, we're going to look at uh, 
uh, renewable energies, and we're looking at kinetic wave energy, and we have three companies that are thinking of coming in. So the idea is that we'll have anchor tenants, we'll have startup companies, we'll incubate folks, and we'll accelerate folks to market. So you've got a lot of land, a lot of development. You took us on a little tour in the golf cart and saw all that's, that's yet to come. What's going to happen? How different is this place going to look in the next, say, two years when I come back here uh, in uh, 2021? What will I see and what do you hope to be able to tell? What's the story? Well, what you will see when you come back in 2021 is that our first project in phase one is renovating 180,000 square feet of existing warehouse. Right now we have four, five, six tenants in the warehouses, but they're you know hulking large facilities. They'll be entirely renovated, keeping the look, the beautiful look of the historic buildings, but then you'll see about 160,000 square feet of existing and startup businesses. And then next, if you're, you'll probably, when you come back, you'll probably see under construction the university piece. It's an existing 60,000 square foot warehouse that's going to be turned into a state-of-the-art research center for 23 campuses in Southern California. So what's the opportunity you see here for large corporates who may have the blue economy as part of their supply chains, even though they may not be directly involved in some of those activities? How do you see playing with big companies? The opportunity for big companies is that if they see, what we see is that the blue economy is a huge opportunity for the future and the blue economy in a sustainable way is that they can find themselves in the port of Los Angeles, which is one of the busiest port complexes on earth in the United States. I mean, where, with, where all the companies are here, we have this great metropolitan area. And so for a Boeing or a Blue, uh, or a Blue Robotics or an Aquai company, whether they're established or want to start up, they're in a market in an urban ocean, in a facility that'll be state of the art. And it's a great opportunity for them to capture the blue economy. Well, there's a lot of opportunity here everywhere you look. That's what this is all about and very impressive. And I do look forward to coming back. Tim McCosker is the CEO of Altice. Thanks so much for the tour, Tim. Thanks. You're always welcome. We'll see you next time. So this is one of those examples of a visit that I am very jealous of. Joel sounds like a great, um, great facility and, and an opportunity. And, and I'm jealous of your visit. Um, you know, just a, a, a wrap-up question. Where does Altice hope to find the next generation of professionals? ready to take on these challenges, you know. I wasn't necessarily thinking of L.A. as the place for that. Well, no one place is the place for that. But what's interesting, and I this is new to me, you know, we've been talking for decades about green MBAs, you know, MBAs focusing on environmental and sustainability issues. There's a new wave, if you will, of blue MBAs. There's one, for example, at the University of Rhode Island, a blue MBA program. It's a dual degree program that merges an MBA with a Master of Oceanography. And uh, we're seeing that at a number of other schools. There's an executive MBA in shipping and logistics at the Copenhagen Business School. Uh, and uh, we're starting to see the advent of the blue MBA. And uh, who knew? Uh, but this is, uh, I think, uh, where the ocean meets academia and ultimately the job market. One of the visitors we had last week at the Green Biz office was Jeff Bobeck, the Director of Energy Policy Engagement at C2ES, the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions in Washington, D.C. Uh, Jeff, welcome to Green Biz. Thank you, Joel. Great to be here. 
we've been talking about carbon uh, capture and sequestration and carbon removal in general. And it seems that in this fairly, you know, not fairly, in these hyper-partisan times in Washington, that there's actually a bipartisan conversation taking place about that. Talk a little bit about what that conversation is and why it's happening. Certainly. Well, that's uh, one of the most uh, significant things that happened last year in energy and environment and policy in Washington was the passage of the 45Q tax credit for carbon storage. And it's it's significant because it had overwhelming bipartisan support. And so some of the most conservative members of Congress and most uh, most progressive members of Congress locked arms and said, we need to, uh, to pass this tax credit to further carbon capture. So, okay, that's in place and that's starting to spur some activity, but where, where's the conversation going now? Well, you know, the interesting thing is all the media attention is directed toward the Green New Deal, as, as well it should be. But at the committee level, the, uh, the leaders of these committees want to get things done in, in their areas of jurisdiction. So we're seeing, we're seeing lots of small bipartisanship, uh, which may add up to quite a bit. We'll just have to see. Can you give an example of what one of those, two of those things might be? Well, I have to mention carbon capture again because uh, Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming uh, works very closely with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island. And you couldn't find two members who, who are more different. But it's great to hear them talk about the partnership they've had on these issues, how they've actually traveled together and gone to see the glaciers. And uh, you would be amazed to hear John Barrasso, who has the biggest coal patch in the country, uh, talking about his concern for the climate. Now, will all these things add up to significant uh, uh, action by Congress? I, I think it will, but, but I think the uh, focusing on the smaller things are, are going to get things done faster. So what's driving this? It, it seems that, you know, it's certainly under the radar and it certainly isn't part of the what's perceived to be the climate conversation or lack thereof coming out of D.C. What's going on? Well, if you look at the popular polling, there's no doubt that a greater percentage of people are concerned about uh, climate. They don't understand it, but they do talk to their members of Congress, and their members of Congress are searching for what's the right thing for the, the 5th District of Michigan, or what's the right thing for the 2nd District of Wyoming. And when you bring it down to that level, that's, that's where you see uh, the narrow policy pieces come together. Uh, I, I think the, the, the public doesn't really understand the Green New Deal yet. Uh, they, they, they don't understand setting, setting big targets without the means to get there. But again, that's a, that's a, that's a discussion that has to, to occur. Probably, I'll, I'll say for my own sake, I, I really think that's a discussion that with a big, the broader one will occur during the presidential uh, campaign. What's the role that you'd like to see from the business community, the corporate community, in helping accelerate the work that seems to be evolving? Well, that's already a start. You, you can't open a, a, a corporate report without reading about climate change. It's a risk factor for them. It may, in fact, sometimes be an opportunity for them. And so uh, when we talk about making America great again, uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, businesses having opportunities to lead around the world. And I, I, every business I talk to understands that and, and you know, wants, wants the government to get on board with that. I get that. Okay, but what specifically would you like to see companies step up, speak up, speak out? What would you like to see them do? 
Well, every one of them has, has to play a different role depending on their market, so it's a little tricky to, to come up with a one-size-fits-all on that. But, but certainly, they have to be talking to their, their consumers and, and not just talking to them, but getting behind some of these policy proposals, telling their, their customers that they can live with, for instance, uh, a price on carbon. Because as you know, many businesses are, are supportive of a price on carbon. They think that's going to make this, this whole energy transition work, work much more smoothly. For people who aren't familiar with the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, what's your piece of this? What are you doing in Washington specifically to help further the conversations and hopefully the action? Thanks. Well, we like to think the most important part of that title is solutions. We like to bring people together, uh, people who, who may disagree, and, and, try and try and hammer out uh, uh, ideas that, that, that can go forward in the policy arena. And so you're, you're not a lobbying organization per se, or are you? I, I don't know. Uh, and and what, are you, what is sort of your toolkit in terms of working with the, both the business community and the policy community? Well, we're, we're conveners. Uh, we, we work with the mayors. Uh, we work with big businesses. Certainly, we have a lot of connections in Congress, although we don't lobby. Uh, but what we try and do is bring everyone together and, and try and see what, what, is, the, what is the path uh, to, to make progress in the near term and in the long term. So we're not just worried about 2050. Frankly, we're, we're pretty concerned about 2030 and even 2022. So Jeff, um you sound kind of optimistic, uh, and that's not a commodity uh, that comes out of Washington very often these days, particularly as it relates to sustainability and, and climate issues. Um, are you hopeful? Joel, some days I wake up screaming. Other days I, I wake up thinking, you know, this will be okay. Um, I, I tend toward the this will be okay because I, I really do believe we've got, we've got, we have it within our power to uh, do great things. You know, uh, you have a, a conservative senator like Lamar Alexander from Tennessee who just said we need a Manhattan project uh, for climate. Well, that, you know, that's a good way to think of it. We, we also talk in terms of a moonshot. Um, th those aren't bad metaphors to, to throw around as long as people are serious about it and, and, and figure out how to do the, the little things that will add up to that kind of a program. Well, thanks for all you're doing to drive that. Jeff Bobeck is the Director of Energy and Policy Engagement at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Verge Weekly comes out every Wednesday. My Green Buzz newsletter on the profession of sustainability is fresh every Monday morning. And we've got three others on transportation and mobility, written by Katie Fehrenbacher, clean energy, written by Sarah Golden, and the circular economy, written by Lauren Phipps. Heather and I will be back next week, per usual. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.